Good morning, everyone. <laughs> it's good to see you all. God willing, in a couple of weeks, we can be mask-free. That will be tremendous, uh, but that's yet to be announced, so we will see. A few announcements. We do have communion following the service today, so just at the tail end, if you're a Christian and you, Jesus is your Lord, well, you're invited and uh, welcome to receive that with us. Uh, we do have a new roster that Trudy's putting together. It's out in the foyer, so please have a look at that. Uh, the way, if you're unsure, is if you sign up for something, we don't assume that that's going to be what you're feeling led or able to do forever, so we kind of do it on like a six-month basis. So if you feel led to greet or to help with the coffee and tea or um, whatever, sign up, feel free. Um, and then seek the Lord about what he would have you do. So be yielded to him in your service. And we are all very blessed to have many who step up in many areas that aren't rostered on to serve and to minister one to another. Now, we do have a, a men's event coming up this Saturday from 4 to 7, calling it the Men's Meetup, which should be cool. So uh, just a time to gather and to get to know each other better. A time of fellowship and food. So you're invited for that, the men. Um, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day. Thank you for the rain that falls and the sun that shines, the birds that sing. And thank you that it is right for us to worship you. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, the word says, and how right it is when we praise you. And when we rejoice in you, even in difficult times, and we thank you that the genuineness of our faith is seen through rejoicing during suffering, in pain, looking to you, seeking you, uh, relying upon you. And I pray that you would lead us, Lord, uh, in this time, that we would be receptive to your word and that we would, we would truly rejoice. We can say, we rejoice in the Lord always. Again, we say rejoice because you are good because you do not change, because you are trustworthy, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. The passage today is in Job 22, starting in verse 21. Most of us, I would think, have been to a doctor and been prescribed something. There's a qualified medical practitioner who has written instructions about some medication to take, or a course of antibiotics, or particular stretches or exercises, and uh, to apply a cream to the affected area daily, right? So it tells you what to do and how often to do it. And then some of those work really well. And other times the dosage needs to be adjusted or maybe the medication changed and the doctor's able to make those judgments. And the, the aim is to promote health and the recovery of the afflicted. And it's tailored to the needs of individuals and and as a patient, you have a choice whether you're going to go fill that prescription because you could receive it and go, ah, I don't need this. Or you could fill it and just say, it's not doing me any good and not finish it. But when God pre prescribes something, you don't have a choice about it happening. You can't say no when God says yes. I mean, you can say no as far as I refuse to receive it, but God does what he does. And that's like in Job's case. Job didn't have a choice about what God prescribed for him. And it was faith in God that sustained him, even though he had questions and even though he struggled. God, he, he brought the Israelites out of Egypt. And when the Hebrews refused to go in, he prescribed 40 years of being in the wilderness led by him. 
And he had a purpose for it that maybe at the time they didn't fully comprehend. It was not a punishment because of their failure. It was to train and to test them. It was to teach them. As Moses said in Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 3. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So God led his people to humble them, to test them. He allowed them to hunger so that they'd eat the food he provided them and that they would learn that more important than the bread, the manna that they ate was to live by the word of God, to be led by him. So they weren't to live lamenting their past and be like, oh, if only our forefathers 30 years ago, 40 years ago had obeyed God and trusted him and entered in the promised land, we wouldn't have to be out here. They were to remember God and his faithfulness how he sustained them all that time, how he gave them everything they needed and he brought them to that good end. That was what God was teaching them through that. Job's friends, they came to him, they assessed him as one who was being judged by God for his sin and they prescribed confession, repentance and returning to God when Job was a righteous man. He hadn't forsaken the Lord. He hadn't been disobedient to God. They proved poor comforters because the first thing, they didn't listen to Job. He said something and they go, well, we know the problem, Job. If you knew it and you could get out of this problem, then we wouldn't have to be here. But here we are and we've got the wisdom for you. And they condemned him as a sinner because he was struggling, because he was going through trials and in pain. And they, because they misjudged him, they gave him unsound advice. Job nor his friends understood that Satan was behind this plot to get Job to curse God to his face, but God had other plans in mind that he was going to redeem it. He was going to show himself faithful and merciful and compassionate. And we have such a comfort in this book, which is ironic because Job suffered so much. And we begin halfway through the third and final address of Eliphaz to Job, and after he's falsely accused Job of many sins, he urges him to take his advice as prescribed, beginning in Job 22, verse 21. Now acquaint yourself with him and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive, please, instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. You will remove iniquity far from your tents. Then you will lay your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks. Yes, the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver, for then you will have your delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. Eliphaz had this very strong black and white view concerning suffering, like sin is the cause of suffering. God judges sinners and Job's suffering was evidence of therefore his sin and all who suffer are sinners in need of repentance. That's just very, it's set in stone in his mind. There's no other option. If you're suffering, it's because sin and it's because God is judging you. Conversely, the one who trusts God and fears God will be blessed and rewarded in this life with good things, right? So he holds both of these to be true. 
He believed that Job brought all these dreadful circumstances upon himself as a consequence for his sin. Yet it all could be reversed if he would just do the right thing. If you would just do this, Job, good will come to you. Everything will be better. It was so simple. Like if you'll just admit that you've been wrong, if you'll make peace with the Lord after seeking him, good will come. And there's so many assumptions that Job did not know God. That's an assumption he made in a previous address that Job had refused God's instruction that Eliphaz spoke for God. He says it right here. Listen to me. I'm speaking for God. Was Eliphaz speaking for God? No, he wasn't. He thought he was. He spoke as a man who did not know God's purposes, his intentions, or Job's heart at all. And he, Eliphaz demonstrates a kind of wisdom, well, it's really ignorance, that masquerades as wisdom even among Christians. Have you heard about knowing enough just to be dangerous? Ever heard that statement? It's kind of like the guy who's able to do minor surfacing on his car. He can change the oil and the filter. So he figures he can just rebuild his transmission. And he can think that until he tries to do it. And as soon as he starts like, well, how do I get this apart? What part's broken in this thing? He realizes it's a very different animal than just changing the oil and filter. A lot of times, though, we don't take our own advice, do we? So he's like, you should do this. You should do that. This is the thing you need to do, Job. But he didn't know Job or the situation, or what God was doing. We can know enough about God and scripture to be dangerous, to ignore the context of a passage, to form doctrine out of it that we can use to accuse or correct or condemn others. Eliphaz believed he spoke for God. Just like a mechanic who gives a quote to rebuild the transmission when it was a flat battery that was the issue. Like he just had it all wrong. And it's a licensed doctor, uh, a qualified mechanic. They've had situations that surprise them. Like, I've never seen this before. They can be stumped by something. So we need to be careful not to be an Eliphaz who think that we, that, like God's wisdom begins and ends with us when it's him, God, who has the wisdom that we need. So he says, if you return to the almighty Job, you'll be built up again. You'd put sin far away from you. Instead of greed for gold, God will be your gold. You'll value him more than ever. And there's a lot of questions that this prescription provokes where it's like, how could Job return to faith in God if he never stopped trusting God? He hadn't left. How could he return? Was Job greedy because he was wealthy? No. Had Job ever valued silver or gold more than God? Well, we don't have any indication he did because God said he was upright and righteous. Job said previously that there was falsehood in the answers of his friends and therefore no comfort in them. He could not accept these conclusions because they were built on a faulty premise that he had departed from God, that he was the cause of this when he was, con he was con sure that it was God who had brought it upon him and that he did not in himself have power to restore. It was only God who could restore him. And so he was seeking God to do so that he would hear from God rather than these miserable comforters. 
Eliphaz continues in verse 27. You will make your prayer to him. He will hear you and you will pay your vows. You will also declare a thing and it will be established for you. So light will shine on your ways. When they cast you down and you say, exaltation will come, then he will save the humble person. He will even deliver one who is not innocent. Yes, he will be delivered by the purity of your hands. He urges Job to seek God and says, if you seek God and you cry to him, you will be heard. Now we know that's true, but was it because he had earned favor with God through his repentance and his confession? No, that's not why God hears us. It's because he is gracious and compassionate and merciful. He says, if you've earned favor with God, you can just say something. You can make a claim and it will happen. God will be compelled to do it for you. God will give you a reward for your faith and for paying your vows. And what he says here really smacks of prosperity doctrine that if Job truly trusted God, if Job walked unrightly, he would be as God, able to speak something into existence, able to do whatever he wanted, that God would be compelled to do what he said because of his faith, because he had repented, because he had sought the Lord in truth. Eliphaz says nothing about humbling yourself before the Lord, waiting on him, but just to make bold proclamations about what will be and that God will have my back. God will be compelled to do it because I have said it. In the context of the point Eliphaz is making, this really is blasphemy. This is saying that man can be as God, that we can earn favor with God, that we can speak as God, and that God will deliver others by our purity. Notice that. He says, even the wicked, he will deliver by the purity of your hands. Before God, who is pure? Only God is pure. Only God can save. Yes, he saves out of grace, but it's not by the purity of our hands. It's by his purity. It's no surprise to me that these are the last words that Eliphaz would say before God spoke to him. God singled him out in Job 42, 7. At the end of the book, it says, And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So like all this stuff that you're saying, this, this way that you've been attacking him, it's not right. So Eliphaz was not speaking for God. When he said this, now, let me say this call to repentance and confession of sin, very applicable, very necessary because we are sinners. It would have been very good advice for the children of Israel when Isaiah was prophet. Isaiah 59, one and two, it says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Sin does separate us from God. It does uh, really destroy the fellowship that we can have with God by grace through faith. Eliphaz's conclusion, it did not take God's grace into account at all. It was all about Job changing his ways rather than considering um, what God had prescribed for his people. Now, he didn't know this. Eliphaz didn't know what was written in Isaiah. He didn't know what Jesus would bring in that we can know because we have the scriptures. 
in light of Isaiah 59, if you were to keep reading, we'll see God would give them an everlasting covenant. His people did their best to keep the law, but it proved profit. It was profitless to them because they couldn't keep it. It was ineffective to save them because effort to keep the law cannot save your soul. Under the law of Moses, people still groped in the dark for God. They were searching for his favor. They wanted to be forgiven. So they had this, these ordinances and the feasts and the sacrifices. But in that darkness, God sent the light of the world, Jesus Christ, to shine, to atone for sin. He sent the Holy Spirit who would regenerate and fill. So it's really neat if you were to keep reading that Isaiah 59 passage to see what God did in light of the ineffectiveness of the law to save people. Yes, it gives us a revelation of God's righteousness and his truth and his character, but it can't save us. It leads us to Jesus. Job 23 Verse one, then Job answered and said, even today, my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in his great power? No, but he would take note of me. There the upright could reason with him and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Eliphaz assumed that Job had not sought God, that he was trying to hide his sin. But this wasn't true. Job sought the Lord. He waited patiently for him. Yet there was no answer from heaven. There was no comfort in his troubles. Remember, he wasn't being punished for his sin. He was being afflicted as an upright and righteous man for God's purposes. And God can redeem even suffering for his, his purposes to be done. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that sorrow makes the heart better. Like it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting and laughing because you'll be thinking about things that really matter and your life will be changed by it and improved. It will give you empathy. And, and we can see in our own lives when we have suffered something and someone else suffers, we have a different view of them when we did in ignorance. And I really appreciate Job's honesty and transparency here because he has faith of steel, but he doesn't think himself a man of steel. He doesn't try to spin his situation into something good coming out of it. He can't see any good coming out of it. He can't see what God is doing. He's seeking God and he can't even hear from God and he's admitting it. He's saying, I'm looking for him, but I can't hear him. I don't know where he is and I don't know what he's doing and I can't even see him working. He still has faith though. His faith is genuine. Job was certain that in God, he would find wisdom that was sorely lacking in himself and in his friends. He's like, God's the one that I need. I need God to speak to me. I need him to help me. He knows God is going to listen to me. He's not wanting to start a fight with me. Like he will take note of me. He sought God who knew him, who would not dismiss his case without a judicious hearing. He's not looking for a fight. Job's not wanting to contend with God. He didn't think that he could argue with God and emerge victorious. But he wanted to bring his case before him because he was the only way he could be vindicated. In my limited 
uh, involvement with the justice system in Australia, the legal system, I found it to be very drawn out, right? There's, uh, there's a lot of fees and paperwork and meetings take months and maybe years to happen. And if one person's not there at the time, well, then you just make a new date. Like, oh, the solicitor's not available. The judge is on holiday. Okay, we just put it off for six months. And you're like, wow, that's a while. Okay. And then you just keep going. And people need to be present to do anything. And even when a judgment's made, there's no guarantees that people are going to abide by the judgment of the court. That's a whole nother thing. The court to make a judgment is fine and good, but who's going to actually make sure it happens? It's quite a romantic notion to think that all parties could be, appear before a judge who knows all the facts without spin, without bias, uh, who just cuts through the bureaucracy, who's able to make a righteous judgment that all people without fail will honor, right? But that's what Job wants. He wants this this romantic notion of like, God's going to vindicate me. Of course, God would vindicate him. But on earth, among people, it, it's, are, we want this, but it, we haven't seen it yet. Ultimately, Job would be exonerated. Not because of his compelling arguments, not because of his reasons or his uprightness, but because God had accepted and delivered his servant. Because of God. That's why he'd be vindicated. Eliphaz was close, but so far from the truth when he said of God, he will deliver even one who is not innocent. Yes, he will be delivered by the purity of your hands. No, delivered by the purity of God's hands. God's the one who delivers. God's the one who saves. Turn with me to Titus 3, starting in verse 1. Paul's exhortation for Titus was to remind Christians how God saved them by grace and to walk worthy of God's mercy, kindness, and love. Titus 3, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior." That, having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God didn't save people because they were deserving, just because God felt pity for them. We are only deserving of death. We're only deserving of being cut off from fellowship with God forever. In darkness for our sin, and we couldn't wash ourselves clean of our guilt. We couldn't work hard enough to justify ourselves. God's not influenced by many of the isms that plague mankind. Things like favoritism and cronyism and uh, nepotism, ageism, sexism, racism. All these isms that, that choose one group or person to the exclusion of others. God's not moved by those things at all. 
Sinners are justified because Jesus is righteous and he provided atonement. The wicked are saved and forgiven because God is worthy, not because they are. We are not good, but God has graciously provided us the gospel. So all by faith in Christ can have salvation. So we can be forgiven. So we can be accepted in the beloved part of the family of God. By grace through faith, we are united with Christ in one body, the church, sanctified by him, for him, out of love. We cannot deserve or earn. And that's what Paul's putting them in remembrance. He's like, remember what God's done for you. Remember who he is for you. In light of what we freely received, we freely give. In light of the forgiveness we enjoy, we forgive others. We don't give to receive. We don't forgive to be forgiven. We don't pray to obtain what we want or need, but out of this knowledge that God has already supplied all our needs. Just like the children of Israel, he says, remember how God led you all those years. Remember how he spoke to you all along the way. That's why you pray. Not because of what you want to get from him. Hasn't God given us all things? Life. And everything that we enjoy. This is the gospel truth that we are called to walk in. The gospel is not just the way to come to God. It's the way to walk with Jesus. Recognizing who he is and what he's done for us. By grace through faith. And we've received salvation by Christ's obedience to the Father. So, and we are obedient to Christ. We follow his example. And we make our request to God knowing what God has already provided by his grace. Not just with a hopelessness or a, a longing of something we don't yet have. Praise the Lord for his faithfulness to his word and his grace and his goodness toward us. I mean, what hope do we have apart from him? Continuing in Job 23, 8. Look, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him, but he knows the way I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job was an upright and righteous man. He sought the Lord. He wanted to hear from God. He didn't want to flee from him. In his darkest hour, it seemed God could not be found. Have you ever been there? Where you're not getting answers. You're not getting directives. You're not really sure where God is working. And he says, like, he's working over here, but I can't see him. I don't know what he's doing. The one who had illuminated his path and helped him every step was distant. And it seemed in darkness. Job thought about his circumstances, his feelings, and his word, the words of his friends, and there was no comfort there. And he couldn't imagine how his suffering was accomplishing anything good. Have you ever been in that place? I like what C.S. Spurgeon said about this. He says, this is one of the marks of a true child of God, that even when God smites him, he still longs for his presence. The child of God knows that the hand of discipline is the same hand that will restore our souls. The one who rebukes and chastens us 
is the one who loves and treasures us forever as his own children. The hand of the shepherd that drives away the wolf and the lion, it's the same hand that comforts us, directs us, grooms, and holds the sheep close. Job didn't see God working in his situation, and, but he was confident that God knew where he was. He's like, he sees my paths. He knows where I am. I can't see him, but he knows me. And he saw his tribulations as a test from God. Even as gold is tested in a crucible with intense heat. Anyone know the melting point of gold? Just a little trivia question for you. Anybody? Mm. 1,064 degrees Celsius. Pretty hot. So there's not many things I possess where I would be very confident that could survive that sort of heat. Where it's going to come out just as good as it went in. Even better than when it went in. But gold is like that. It can be put in this, it can be melted, it can be dissolved in chemicals, but when it's brought out, it's more pure than before when those impurities and the slag is cooked off by that intense heat. Gold's very dense, it's nearly twice the weight of lead at the same volume. And Job says, When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. It's very distinct in its color. It's bright and shiny. It does not tarnish or rust. It maintains its purity. Genuine gold does not suffer any loss of quality or weight if you were to melt it down. It's still there. If anything, Job knew he would be purified through the process, that he would come forth like gold. He learned the lesson that God had taught those believers, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He learned that lesson. He knew it. He lived it. This test did more than prove that Job had learned the lesson, but that his faith in God was genuine. I think sometimes we can make Christianity more about learning rather than the importance of being born again, abiding in Christ, walking in obedience to him. Because we think if I can just learn the lesson, then I can just cut to the end of the, I can get to the end of this test. I can get to the end of the trial because I've learned it as if that's the only thing God wants from us. If that's the only thing he's trying to do is teach us something. No, he's training us. He's guiding us. He's proving his faithfulness all along when we have one idea and he actually knows what he's doing. He knows why he's prescribed something. We don't understand. Speaking for myself, I'm not someone who liked tests at school. Like I was not fond of tests. Tests meant work. It meant extra study. It meant the chance of failure. Sometimes the probability of failure, right? Testing. It's tough. The test that Job faced was not so much about his performance on the day, but who he was. If he was if he had faith in God or not, if he was known and loved by God or not, that was really the question more than what's he going to do this or that is about who he was. Kind of like a DNA test confirming your parents who they are. Would you guys be worried about that test? Some maybe would. 
But the reality is, if you know who your parents are, there's no need to fear that test because you know my mom and my dad, my brother, my sister. It's not pride for a child to say, this is my mom, this is my dad, when it's true. Job was also tested in another way. Would he hold fast to God in faith and obedience in him? Or would he fall for Satan's temptation to curse God? Now, it's Satan who tempts us. He would try to draw us away from God, but God doesn't tempt anyone to sin because there's no sin in God. No temptation arises from God. It says this in James 1, 13 and 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Satan will often appeal to our flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and get us to turn away from God, to move from the path of righteousness he's called us to walk upon. And this temptation that Satan makes, it's a test that God allows so that we can be shown to be genuine followers of Christ, that we can walk in obedience to his word. And no matter how overwhelming that temptation may feel, God has made a way of escape for us. And we can take great comfort in this. Why don't we turn to this passage in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 through 15. I think this is so important because our feelings can say something very different, very much like Job's friends. Our feelings can be like Job's friends. It's like, I'm talking for God. And we're like, no, you're not. God has already spoken and he's made his word clear. It's just, will we believe it and obey it or not? 1 Corinthians 10, 13 through 15. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved brethren, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. When Potiphar's wife made a pass at Joseph, he fled. He literally ran away. And in the same way, we ought to flee from idolatry, thinking that we are God, thinking that something else is God, that we are to be served. Jesus was at, in all points, tempted and yet without sin. And so we know he's able to help us in all temptation that we face. He'll help us endure every test that God allows by his grace. Job 23, verse 13 but he, speaking of God, is unique, and who can make him change? And whatever his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider this, I am afraid of him. For God made my heart weak, and the Almighty terrifies me, because I was not cut off from the presence of darkness, and he did not hide deep darkness from my face." Job appeals to the sovereignty and immutability of God, the fact he does not change. The word unique, it really doesn't do justice to God and his character because it can be applied to so many different things that are not God. But the word is translated from a word that means unchangeable, unique, alone, and one. It's like nothing can be compared to God in any way. God's so much greater being the creator 
It's like a, a pencil. It's nothing like the designer of the pencil. They, one's an inanimate object that has a, a few limited uses. And the other one conceived of that, uh, constructed it, designed it, manufactured it. It's like a car has no resemblance to the workers in the plant that assembled it. Very different. And so he's like, God's unique. He is alone. There's, he's one. There's no one like him. He's not to be compared with any other thing because he's the creator. He has infinite power and wisdom and knowledge. And what God appoints or prescribes, there's no questioning it because he's made everything and he knows everything. And we're full of questions, aren't we? Full of questions. We're like, why did God, why did he create biting flies? Why? Why did he make venomous spiders? When, like, why poisonous shrubs? Why is this a thing? There's a, there's a hundred other things he could have made, but he chose to make this thing that could be dangerous to people. Why? Right? And we're kind of, we can just be stuck there forever. Why? Because we don't know and we could never know. And we wonder why, why did you do this and not this thing? And we only say that because we think we know better. We think this would have been more advantageous. This would have been more effective, efficient, timely, necessary. And so we feel like we can tell God what he should do. Or we question what he did. Or we say he wasn't in that. It couldn't have been him. He could not have prescribed such a thing. But look at Job. God prescribed this. He appointed this. And in the thing that you're enduring right now, will you see that as being prescribed, appointed by God to accomplish his purposes that you cannot know? Job didn't know. Maybe someday you will know some of the purposes. But God knows, and there's no one like him. He knows all things. By faith in the righteous, good God, Job endured all God prescribed. He wasn't like Jonah who tried to flee from God's presence to Tarshish. Like, I mean, what, what a silly thing that you can run from God. But he tried. Uh, King Saul, he sought the aid of a medium when he sought the Lord. He, he went and, and inquired of the Lord. God gave no answer. And then he went and sought a spiritist to direct him. In one sense, Job took his medicine because God made him, not because he wanted to or could see it being beneficial to him in any way. What choice did he have but to keep trusting and looking to God in faith? And that is a good place to be, even in pain. Then Job's terrified at the thought of God because he's like, he's, no one's like him. He's so powerful. He's so mighty. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And he's music, like, at first he's like, I want to bring my case before him. And he's like, maybe it's not a good thing to bring my case before the Lord because he's terrifying. I mean, just think of the mighty things that he does. It's not because I'm afraid this secret sin is going to come to light before the almighty, but God is so holy, so righteous. It's, and some of our lack of fear can be ignorance, like, the fisherman who's kind of excited, he's got a small perch on the line and he's going down to the water, not knowing that there's a five meter crocodile that's uh, ready to pounce on him. You know, this apex predator, he, he would be 
very cautious to approach that water if he knew that beast was lurking there, right? So he's very carefree. Well, Job's not carefree about God. He's not ignorant of God's strength. He's like, God is just, you know, he can just doom you forever. He could just crush you without a trace. Like he, he is so glorious and mighty. So there is a healthy fear, one around known hazards. And there's another kind of fear when you're running for your life because of a bushfire or when the roof is taken off your house in a cyclone and it's like a freight train coming by and you're wondering if you're going to survive. The greatest natural disasters either by man or what are deemed acts of God are nothing in comparison to the power of the almighty. Nothing compares to that. Like you think of the most frightening experience of your life that has nothing on God and his ability to do. And the, the fierceness of his wrath that he will pour upon the ungodly. He is to be feared. He is glorious. You know, fires, earthquakes, bombs, and radioactive fallout. Those are all temporary. But hell is forever. Please turn to the, the words of Jesus in Luke 12, 4 and 5. This is what Jesus said to his disciples, Luke 12, 4. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. So he's talking about the, the destructive power of God. And I think, how many ants have I stepped on in my life without even knowing? Like how much, and as a kid, maybe you're like thinking you're Godzilla or something, stomping on an ant and, oh no, it's biting me. And that wasn't very smart. And, uh, or, or how much havoc do you wreak on microorganisms when you break out that bleach and clean, do a deep clean in the bathroom? You're like, oh, if bacteria could and fungus could shout, this place would be deafening, right? We were just getting it, and we're like, right on, get rid of it. Um, nothing compared to the power of God. But Jesus continues in verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore... You are of more value than many sparrows. So in one sentence, Jesus is saying, fear God. Don't fear man, fear God who can throw your soul into hell. But then he's like, but don't be afraid because God hasn't forgotten you. He knows you. He loves you. He'll protect you. So one is afraid of God's power to destroy, but the believer has such rest and comfort in knowing God's power to save to protect, to provide now and forever. So you see the difference faith makes? Everything. Such a wondrous promise. Job was terrified of God due to his power, but he could rest in the God who knows him, would remember him and value him, that he is a savior and a deliverer. We come to God today as Job could not. We come to God in light of the gospel. God's revealed himself to us, his love, his grace, that he's provided atonement for his blood with his blood shed on Calvary. And 
In a world of darkness, sickness, sin, and death, God's grace has shone bright through Jesus. That he's given us a way of escape, wrath, and also um, our own sin. He's given us a purpose and accepted us into the beloved by his grace. And God, when Jesus was, when he went to the cross, it demonstrated God's love for sinners, for his enemies, that he wanted them saved. He wanted them redeemed. And that suffering, that rejection, that betrayal that Jesus endured was prescribed by the father. Jesus knew this hour is coming and it came. And it was, would Jesus drink of that cup? And he did for us, for the joy that was set before him. And since the creation of the world, never has the judge died in the place of the condemned. Right? Think of that. That the judge would die for the condemned. That the king would die in place of his subjects. That the high priest in Israel would be offered himself as an acceptable sacrifice instead of a bull or a goat or a lamb. That the good shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep and the sheep would be saved. Because if the shepherd died, then who would protect the sheep? But Jesus didn't remain dead. He, he rose from the dead because he is God. He gives redemption, salvation, and eternal life. I just encourage you guys to consider what God prescribed for Job, what God prescribed for Jesus. And though the thing he's prescribed to you may look very different, recognize that he is the same good God who loves you, who has plans for you, and is accomplishing things beyond your imagination. We're going to have a time of receiving communion together. And I want to, to encourage you as we turn to 1 Corinthians eleven, twenty-three through 26, that Jesus is the Lord. Many times in scripture, he's referred to as the Lord said, the Lord. He's kurios. He is supreme. He is above all. The things he says, that's exactly what he does. We can count on him. Paul had rebuked the Corinthian church for their divisions and their factions and their unloving and shameful conduct. And then he instructs them to receive communion together, regularly united in faith. And he says, you should partake in a worthy manner. Not that they are worthy, but that they would judge themselves to be born again, children of God by faith. And so he says, let each examine yourself. There used to be a day years ago in, in the church that it was the decision of someone in the church, like some minister or elder who would decide if you were worthy to partake. But the Bible says is that's for you to decide because it's really his decision and he will show you. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Our lives can be a proclamation of God's love, his grace and goodness as we walk in obedience to him. Jesus, he's the living bread that's come down from heaven that gives eternal life to all who believe. And we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God who is Christ. He is the word of God who became flesh. And even when the circumstances of life are bitter, there is a sweetness in our Savior that we should savor. God's given believers a prescription for life. We have that in Christ, an abundant life. That's not dependent on circumstances. Even as Moses told those children of Israel to look back and remember how God fed them all those years and led them faithfully. We're called to look back to Jesus and look to him now, how he has provided for us salvation, guidance, wisdom, and love. Uh, What will happen is I'll pray and have the worship team come forward to lead us in a song. And as they do, please come up and take of the cup and the bread, and there is some in the foyer for those out there as well. Um, and then once we've all received, I'll come up and lead us in a prayer. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the life you've given us through Jesus, that you prescribed death to Jesus so we could have life through him. And that Jesus, he did not remain dead, but he rose from the dead in power showing his victory over sin and death. Thank you, Lord, that we have this way of drawing near to you without the veil. We can look at you with unveiled face because that the veil of the temple was torn in two. We have fellowship with you through Jesus Christ and faith in him. Thank you, Lord, for forgiveness of sins and that we are um, called and enabled to come before you by grace through faith. You are the worthy one. You are the holy one. You are the one with the pure hands who can clean our hearts and our souls and make us new. And so to you, Lord, we direct our praise and we worship you and thank you for all that Jesus has done, that he died and rose and his blood was shed, his body was broken. He fulfilled the scripture and satisfied your justice. So by grace, we are saved. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. And I pray that in our struggles, in our sorrows, that we would look to you with eyes of faith, even when we can't see you, when we don't know what you're doing, when we we can't understand the way that you're working or, or how you're involved. Lord, we thank you that we can have all confidence in you, our almighty God, the one who loves us, the one who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up so that we could live. Will you not save us as well? We just thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us, your mercies and your compassions that fail not. In Jesus' name, amen.